Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. When Jamie Wheel comes on Bulletproof Radio, we always get into some mind-bending topics. He's a friend who specializes in neuroanthropology. What the heck is that? It means it brings together culture, biology, and psychology into a single field. Jamie is a co-founder of the International Flow Genome Project, of which I was the first investor. And they work on training people for the ultimate human performance. He looks at the nitty gritty between science and human potential with a lot of precision. And that's why our interview about hedonic engineering ended up being a multi-episode miniseries for you because it was more than would fit in one episode or fit in your head all at one time. We pull apart his book, Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God's Sex and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. Jamie goes to a lot of places you probably wouldn't think about all in search of the flow state. Things like the fascinating sex survey he conducted with couples or his views on sexy biohacking and nerdy kink. We've got some deep survival circuits and powerful evolutionary drivers when it comes to sex and death and everything in between. So if you care about neuroscience and psychology, listen to these episodes. You're going to like what you hear. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. I, I like the amount of rigor behind the science you put out mm-hmm. in Recapture the Rapture because you're saying like, well, let's look at what all this this stuff looks like. And you go into some of the history too and you talk about a, a Dakini. Mm. Now, for people who don't know that that's not a kind of swimsuit, uh, <laughs> tell me about Dakinis. Yeah, I mean, they were fundamentally coming out of the Tibetan and Buddhist traditions, and they were, you know, they were sort of, uh, you know, sky dancing tantrikas. So they they were women, you know, f- women adepts who had attained and accessed God consciousness, and and quite often, and, and Miranda Shaw, who was trained at Harvard and has been an independent scholar, has written extensively about women in particularly Tibetan Buddhism, which has these strong shamanic and tantric uh, elements. And she's like, actually, look, the, the, the secret story is actually they were the ones who switched on first. And then all the famous dudes, Milarepa, Padmasamava, all these other guys, actually got woken up by their consorts. It was the women. The women were smarter. And they are the ones that got there first. And so these women were basically adepts and initiators of um, psychosexual realization. And, and that story that you're, you're referencing, Yeshe Sogyal, um, we were actually, we were guiding uh, on the Tibetan side of Mount Everest. But before we got there, we had visited some um, crazy tantric monasteries up at like 17,000 feet. And the Chinese communists had never got there. There was sort of like, a, you know, supposed to be really pure, pure. And, and um, that was the place that she had come. She was like an eighth century princess who had skipped town because her parents had tried to arrange her marriage and she said fuck that i'm not doing that and she went off and basically she had to go through all these trials she 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 duped it out with a tiger defeated it and beheaded him and then she comes back to her home province in kachin and and seven bandits basically mug her and rape her but she's such a badass that she allows it to happen and then at the culmination of that experience they all experience illumination and they drop to their knees weeping and vow to become her bodyguards for life and so then she's like all right come with me hop on my magic flying carpet and they fly to this to this monastery where we ended up uh, with these crazy hot springs with snakes in them which was nuts and um 
and and flew and and took Padmasambhava, one of the you know the the founders of Tibetan Buddhism, up to this cave right in the middle of this three thousand foot granite wall, and that's where they disappeared for a decade to in basically invent Tibetan tantra and even the meditative practice of Tonglen, which many of your your listeners may be familiar with. These places actually exist, and, and people who haven't been to the remote parts of Tibet and Nepal or studied with the masters, um, some, of, some of those experiences which I've had personally, um, not of you know being raped and taken to a you know cave or something like that, but just <laughs> meeting, meeting the people from these lineages and, mm-hmm. and understanding some of the things that are not in the written records, you just go, wow, um, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's been happening, and how much of that's metaphorical versus literal, I don't, I don't really know. We also know you go back to Egypt, there were, you know, there were, um, we'll call them sex cults or sex temples, you know, manned entirely by women where like you'd go there to have a communion with God, right? And you know, that was that was part of the job. And you, you look at all these things, and it seems like it's mostly been lost. And what we have now is we have uh, porn sites, right? Mm. <laughs> and then marriage or dating, uh, but the but a lot of the spiritual stuff is is lost. Are, are you hopeful that there's going to be a a revival of that that transformative, cathartic, healing sex, or is this always going to be the realm of you know people who are advanced personal development people and uh, seen as pretty much weird people by everyone else? Is this going to become mainstream? Gosh, I mean, I'm not hopeful about many things, <laughs> um, but 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 in in my sense is like history seems to happen orthogonally. You know, like whatever you're trying to have happen never happens the way you, you're trying to have it happen. And then you give up, but then some weird little like bank shot off the corner happens and you're like, oh my gosh, that like that worked. So it might not be the people you're trying to reach. It might be people three steps away in a network. It might not be this year. It might be a century or a decade from now. Like things happen in weird and squishy ways as far as humans finding our way forward. So do, you know, do I and would I hope for something better than, um, you know, Pornhub as our sort of baseline for sexuality and inspiration. Absolutely. And is that possible? I think it's hardest to imagine in the US of A, right? We've got such deep, conflicted, puritanical coding overlaid with hypersexuality and commodification that it can be really difficult. But if you go to Europe, you know, where parents will, you know, be sitting downstairs having tea with a teenage couple and then give them condoms and the kids go off upstairs to make love for the first time. And then they come back downstairs and their parents say, well, how was that for you? Was that, was that good? Was that nice? Was that healthy? Was that happy? Like, like that would blow the mind of most Americans. Right, so I think I like being married to a Swede. I'll put it that way. Yeah, right. Like the the so so everything is cultural, and I think that there is there is a hope. I mean, I guess the simplest my hope would be is that we all get, and you you know you've obviously been long on this project yourself, but kind of like humans, a user manual. Like, hey, human, like, well, you're a clever primate. You're a monkey with clothes. You know, like, this is how your body works. This is how your brain works. This is the planet you're on. This is the universe. And this is the system you're in. And this is roughly what's up. And here's a way to find your way forward. And if we just had those as toolkits for resilient and vibrant being, I think we'd probably all be better off. And so that's the kind of thing that I would hope to see more of. 
I think we are finally to the point where we're getting enough data. I mean, you mentioned the aura ring. We're getting heart rate from that. Um, I'm going to be getting a lot of data as I get upgrade labs um, out there as a franchise. So we'll have you know, hundreds of locations where people are oh, wow. rejuvenating themselves. Um, but at the same time, you know, gathering data so we can say what works, what doesn't work, and what mm-hmm. what is the human condition. And we have all the brainwave stuff that we're gathering from from 40 years of Zen and that's just a tiny drop in the bucket compared to all of the different people working on all the different projects. So we're, mm-hmm. we're getting enough data to be able to say, well, here's an instruction manual that's based on <laughs> something tangible. Even the study you just did here mm-hmm. that says if you do this, most of the time you get this. If you don't get this, it's because you have this weird option on your car and then you should do this. So when it comes to food, when it comes to sleep, when it comes to all this stuff, I think we're we're getting there. So I'm I'm hopeful that we'll at least be less stupid about what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was I was also intrigued speaking of being less stupid. Um, you talk about how the study that you did delivered proof that women are smarter and possibly more enlightened than men. <laughs> <laughs> talk to me about that. Yeah, well, I mean, a that was a play on an old uh, Grateful Dead tune. That's right, the women are smarter, right? So, so that was yeah. that was that hat tip. But it was it was also it was um, you know it was it was a throwback to the Yeshe Sogyal because uh, her consort Padmasambhava said he said um, you know a human body is is a beautiful vehicle for enlightenment, like in you know deeply embodied um, waking up, not disembodied. I'm a skinny sadhu wrapped in a you know wrapped in a bath towel. So he said a human body is the perfect vehicle, but if a woman has the inclination, a woman's body is better. So that was the ancient truth claim. And then one of Nicole Prousey's studies, which was assessing can even just 15 to 20 minutes of genital stimulation for a woman, can that produce not just you know physiological and psychological healing and pain relief, but can it actually pr- provide access to mystical states? So this was one of the kind of focuses of the study. Um, actually disclosed that um, for for women, and, and the, um, you know, sadly, it wasn't symmetrical. This was a, a, a there was the, the, you know, the male identified um, partner was stimulating the woman. It wasn't reciprocated. Um, but in that study, um, the women had access to peak states, again, using that Hopkins metric that met and exceeded the highest dose of psilocybin. And so you're like, wow, you know, once again, um, really um, much more accessible, cheap, <laughs> to, you know, free. Like this is everybody, all you got to do is just shut your front door and have, you know, and, and, and schedule a play date with a friend with benefits. And you can have access to the things that, you know, are getting touted in news cycles kind of incessantly over the last three years as these miracle cures and break, you know, breakthroughs of psychedelic therapies. So that, that was the sense. And I think it's also just, um, some hope, I think, just to kind of playfully, but sincerely attempt to rebalance the ledger. Cause you were talking about your four F's Right. And, and for me, I, I always think of like, what are men good for? You know, which is we're, we're really good at fighting stuff, fucking stuff and building stuff. But, but when to fight and who to fuck and what to build, we're terrible at. Right? <laughs> so we can really do with a little womanly wisdom. And, you know, I always think of like, when I was in grad- I'm trying to figure out if you'd said something that would get you canceled or uncanceled in that last thing. I, I'm so confused now, but I, I think, it's, I think at this point, if you say anything, <laughs> you're at risk of it because someone will fly off the handle. Um, but in grad school, I studied like you know, in like Native American proto context, so like right when Europeans and and indigenous cultures mixed. And one of the most 
fascinating examples I ever came across was the Iroquois Council of Grandmothers. Because you would think like big chief warrior dude, he was the kick-ass one and he led the thing. No, no, it wasn't that. He reported hat in hand to the grandmothers. And when the Hurons or some other tribe would come and kill somebody or do something, and he's like, we're going to go on the warpath. They're like, all right, son. You know, but if you do, you better not lose a single one of our boys. Because if that happens, we're going to have to avenge them and then avenge them and then avenge them. We've seen this movie. So, you, you know, cool your hot-headed testosterone adult jets home slice, you know, and we're playing the long game for seven generations. And that for sure feels like something that we could reinstitute in meaningful ways. And I think we'd probably all be better for it. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, we do need our councils of grandmothers. Um, there's uh, actually a great shortage of elders in general, including our grandfathers, who sometimes get wisdom <laughs> at a certain point. <laughs> and maybe if you talk to someone who's 70, he'll tell you who to fuck and who not to fuck. <laughs> Just because he's seen it enough times and made the mistakes himself. This is why I cultivate uh, friendships with people uh, way older than me because they hmm. tell me the things that I probably would do that would be stupid. Uh, even though <laughs> I like to think I've accumulated some wisdom, uh, I'm always working on it. Well, yeah. Now, um, now let, let me run this past you because my because I've also seen a number of men when they get through their power band of their earning and their career and their public, you know, public facing and all that kind of stuff, that often they regress into a kind of a second childhood. They become more petulant. They become less flexible and rigid. And I see that, I mean, these are all just, this is just anecdotal, but yeah. I see that less often in older women, in, in grandmothers. And I'm wondering if in the instances where, because like motherhood is a non-negotiable rite of passage from being self-oriented to absolutely no bones about it being other-oriented. And a man may learn those things through his life, but he doesn't have to, not nearly in the same way. And, I was just, and I'm just wondering whether in the absence of some other profound commitment to something bigger than themselves, and that could be military service, that could be running and growing an organization that you're committed to leading, it could be a thousand different things, but if they don't happen, that men by default are more, are more prone to regression than grandmothers are. Does that track for you? I think that tracks. It, it probably has a lot to do with uh, with hormone decline in, as it declines differently in andropause uh, for men mm. versus menopause for women. And given that both of those are entirely optional <laughs> right now, <laughs> and then like read my books on aging. Uh, if if you're managing your hormones correctly, I think you can maintain that the youthful energy, but have the the wisdom. Um, of of being an elder, mm. but if you go down the path of allowing yourself to be low testosterone as a man or a woman, even if it's normal for your eighty year old age group, you're like yeah, but am I like the movie Grumpy Old Men, mm. <laughs> or am I showing up the way I want to show up? So when we use the biohacking to show up the way we want, I think you actually have a healthier sex life even as you age and you're you know menopausal or andropausal whatever. But it's not about the sex; it's about the brain. Mm -hmm. Right, even yeah. though, as you're saying very clearly in your study, that sex is affecting and driving the brain. So there, there's some kind of an answer in there that's mixed up between the two. I think. Yeah, well, I mean, exactly what you just said. Right, it's the same with the same with substances. So it's not about the sex and it's not about the drugs. Everybody wants to make it about those things, but it's actually about what are the mechanisms of action. These are just keys that fit in locks. What does the door open to, and what is the view from there? And so. 
one of the pieces when I, when I said that, like, you know, for five years, I was just kind of researching this and doing that sort of neuroanthropology thing of like, well, what is this and where else has it something similar shown up and then what's under the hood? What we came to was uh, Carl Dyseroth's work at Stanford and also an MIT, there was an MIT, there was an MIT a Harvard and a, and a Stanford studies. And between them, I was like, per chow, that felt like the Rosetta Stone to this whole thing because Carl Dyseroth, well, actually, and now I'll throw in Rick's MDMA uh, PTSD studies, right? So between those mm-hmm. four things, I was like, oh, I think I understand how this is working, which was um, the MIT study, I'll start with that one, um, was in 2015, it was a bunch of anesthesiologists there, and they were doing research on nitrous oxide, at, you know, which is, you know, laughing gas for dentists, and it's for midwives, and it's all those kind of things. It's a or w- whippets for burning man. Yeah. Whippets for burning man. It's, it's a WHO essential medicine, because it doesn't repress respiratory drive, unlike opioids, and those kind of things. So it's considered very safe and efficacious, and all that kind of stuff. And actually, there's just been a new study that I saw like two weeks ago, on people trying to replicate ketamine antidepressive effects with nitrous oxide and finding positive results. So I was like, okay, what is going on in these spaces? And it turns out, and they were shocked by this finding. They were like, oh, three three to five minutes after ingestion of 50% oxygen, 50% nitrous oxide through a rebreather, um, the patient's delta wave, waking delta EEGs, which is very, very rare, right? Esoteric as shit meditative states are about all that gets you there while still awake. Otherwise, it's deep, dreamless sleep. Um, actually became double amplitude delta waves for three to 12 minutes, after which they normalized and then go back to baseline. And, and then I was like, whoa, that's fascinating. Um, and who else has done this? And it turns out, you know, William James was famously, uh, that's what prompted his whole birthing of optimal psychology and comparative religion at Harvard back in the 19th century. Winston Churchill was a total gashead. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, this is, you know, like he, he got hit by a car in New York City in the 30s, then got taken to like the only hospital in New York that was pioneering nitrous oxide for anesthesiology and surgery to fix him. And he's like, realm upon realm of alien powers disclose themselves. And I've come to conclude that nitrous oxide, that the, that the gas merely substitute and, but then I can't remember what it is, and therefore I've come to conclude that the gas merely substitutes, you know, it erases physical pain and, and, and substitutes it wow. for mental pain. Yeah, you're like, this is crazy. I did not. I just quoted him yesterday on Instagram uh, saying that uh, if uh, if the army didn't have beef and they just became nut eaters, that they would all be weak and be killed by the Germans. Um, the vegan people got mad at me for that. <laughs> but uh, I did not know Churchill <laughs> used nitrous oxide as an early guy before he did all of his crazy stuff. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So, so that was my first clue on, oh, maybe it's delta waves. And then swing over to Stanford and Carl Dyseroth, who's the founder of optogenetic innovation and all those kind of things, he was doing a study with ketamine to see, which is a dissociative anesthetic, right? And so, and, and seeing its role on antidepressive effects. And what he was noticing, he did this fascinating study with both mice and then with epileptic patients. So humans who could talk back and report and basically was checking And they had some little test to understand when a mouse was dissociated. They were probably like flopping around or bumping into the walls in their maze or something. They were like, you're out of your body, dude. You're in the K-hole, right? And the same for the humans. And and what they did is then, then track that it was, they tracked when both subjects were clearly in a disembodied or dissociative state. They tracked that against the antidepressive effects. And then they measured the EEG. And it was three hertz, which is, you know, 0.1 hertz to four hertz is the delta range. And three hertz, you know, comfortably in that sweet spot. But, and, and that's interesting. You're like, okay, neat confirmation, another hit of Delta. But the next move was the, was the game changer where he's like, okay, now no drug 
Let us go back in neuroelectrically in the humans and optogenetically, so they're actually tweaking the genes in the mice. Let's re-stimulate the three hoods. And wouldn't you know it, they're back in that same dissociative state, the same out-of-body experience, the same awe-inspiring, information-rich experience they were having, and comparable antidepressive effects. So you're like, okay. So that felt like a really key piece and sort of one of the, if, you know, like delta waves are sort of the redheaded stepchild of EEG research. I mean, Ura and other things and, and, and Matt Walker and others are really now, you know, in the last 24 months, it's been coming more and more as a sleep health, sleep hygiene yeah. element, but not the, waking. There's delta. a lot more in delta. I mean, we've had more than a thousand people come through 40 years of Zen looking at basically improving human performance. And there's a certain type of person who comes through with certain frequencies in certain locations mm -hmm. um, that I wouldn't feel comfortable disclosing. Um, but those are people who can do things that other people just can't do. And those states are trainable, but you just don't want to train them. <laughs> you don't want to train them in people who aren't ready uh, because, uh, well... Was that Spider-Man quote? Uh, With great responsibility comes great power. Okay, well, well Lou, let's talk about that, right? Because Vice yeah. just Vice just published right that the missing page from that crazy document from the eighties with the Holosync folks. Whoa, I know those guys, the Holosync guys. Um, I didn't see that on Vice. So there was a missing page. What there was the missing there? page. There was like the missing page, which was that whole government report on them doing delta wave entrainment and then creating toroid fields and quantum leaping or what you know, it was it was definitely like some conjectural as hell explanations for what where they were going and 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 what the mechanisms were. But fundamentally the core mechanism of action, I believe, was aligned with delta wave state injunction. Um, there's no doubt that people who are advanced meditators can have more control of their, of their delta. Mm -hmm. And Bill Harris came on the show a couple of times who was responsible for uh, Centerpoint, which was yes. in the same vein as Holosync. I think it, I think you're right. I think it's Centerpoint. Oh, it, it was Bill Virginia. Harris, not Holosync? It's, it's the Virginia outfit, Monroe, that's, Virginia. Yeah, that that's actually Monroe Institute. That was James Monroe. Okay. So guys, where we're getting into now, if you're listening, going, what the hell are these guys talking about? In the 80s, there were two, I'm going to call them preeminent brain hackers out there using binaural beats. This is slightly shifted sounds to change brain states. And you could go to a facility um, in Monroe, Virginia, uh, the Monroe Institute. Uh, I think it was in Monroe, Virginia, anywhere, wherever in Virginia. And they would use EEGs and sounds to put yourself in these incredible states. And if you mm -hmm. want your brain to work all the time, it has to be able to go to some states <laughs> with ease and not waste energy in other states. But when you look at these, if you, if you guys want to Google this, you can look at Hemisync or Holosync, and there's just tons and tons of info out there. You can still go to, to uh, Centerpoint. I know that they're operating, even though Bill's passed. Uh, and there's there's great knowledge there. And I think uh, when you look at things like neurofeedback, uh, even home devices, you look at mm -hmm. heart rate variability training, all of those are in that same realm of how do we do this yogic or this meditation stuff faster. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to get back to your your knowledge of delta waves and sex specifically. Mm -hmm. You're saying that when people are having this kind of transcendent spiritual sex, they're getting those delta waves? Well, especially if you combine it with um, breath work involving yeah. oxygen and nitrous oxide and or yeah, I'm stacking um, oxytocin and ketamine. 
So, and then, you know, and again, this is like the notion of like, take the kink out of kinky, right? For most people, if you're, if you're in like, you know, respectful, you know, uh, gender balance relating that kind of stuff, unless you have just access to and, and an inclination for BDSM or something else like that, most, you know, most kind of, you know, vanilla folks look at those communities or practices and they're like, whoa, that's a little wiggy. That's not necessarily my thing. I don't necessarily know if I want to sign up to be a naughty schoolgirl or a dirty boy or whatever it is, like like whatever the scripts are, you know, like it's often off-putting. Like that's not my people. I, I was going to ask you about that because in the book you say, if you're open-minded and sincere in your pursuit of the most effective protocols for healing humans, you end up in one of two places, sexy biohacking or nerdy kink. <laughs> yeah. So, which, which is, I, I did, what do you mean? <laughs> well, it's, it's just that, it's just that simple sense of, well, I mean, for starters, um, for women, and I don't know the, the, not the ratio for men, but I would assume it's somewhere in the mix, but for women, it's four, four X pain tolerance at the crest, crest of orgasm. You mm-hmm. add nitrous oxide or ketamine, those pain tolerances can go up and you get to a point of arousal. And this goes back to sex in the animal kingdom. Right, life, you know, sex is nasty, brutish, and short. So we get tons of endorphins, we get tons of anandamide, we get tons of pleasure enhancing, pain reducing neurochemistry. And there is a point, plus or minus, you know, whatever, 90 seconds to 120 seconds on either side of climax, which could be expanded and extended via edging practices where you don't go over the falls, um, where your pain tolerance is through the roof. And then basically pleasure pain gets hotwired and all pain gets experiences as pleasure. So now you're in that zone where you could be like, you know, pinch, 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 smack, pow, pow. And you've suddenly loaded up the nervous system. And, you know, basically we're prefrontal cortexes connected by a spinal column to erogenous zones. And, and if you learn to play that system like a loving and compassionate instrument, you can basically load up a bunch of neurological stimulation, release it and timed with the breath work, with the gas-assisted static apnea, with oxytocin and ketamine, with driving sonic music, with strong bass and hopefully profound lyrics and a kick-ass beat, you know, like time it, like start your breathwork protocol. 52.1 is the one we settled on, which was 50 hyperventilations to decrease CO2, two inhalations of pure oxygen to supersaturate your red blood cells, and one shot of um, either of blended 70-30 nitrous oxide oxygen, and then maximum static apnea. And at that point, your partner can then edge you over the top into climax, although it's sort of irrelevant, but kind of a neat one if you can hit it, and then also any loading up of pleasure pain. And so, and then you just max, 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 and then you just basically sort of shavasana the universe. You just and then, then you meet God, right? Well, then <laughs> then you were in. I mean, and you know that's the back end of the book, which is where does this information come from? Because like in those delta wave states with high vagal nerve tone and supersaturated neurochemistry, right? You tend to defrag your 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 traumas, and it can include, could include tremor release, right? It can include yoga, it can include Thai massage, it can include body work and theraguns and percussive massage. Like you, that's what I meant about like a sexual yoga of becoming. It's not rose petals and 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 John Legend. You know, it, it's hey, how do we work together? And you know, if we were in a more progressive society, you could have sexual surrogates. You could have you could you, this could be therapeutic and professionalized. It's just that you know, the safest, simplest is with a friend with benefits where you've mutually committed, like we could just do this with clothes on 
you know, in a yoga studio, we can take it half of the distance. We can take it 50% of the way without any erotic element. But if you wanted to do the full stack, that's what I meant about if you don't, you're not squeamish, you end up with sexy biohacking. And it's just yep. simply weaving that additional, really, really potent central nervous system circuitry into any and all of your other practices. What? What I have found and what's a part of, of some of the neuroscience work that I do is that when the body is re-experiencing a trauma, mm -hmm. but it's coupled with extreme pleasure, they cancel each other out. And mm. that's why some people experience so much catharsis and even permanent healing when they go to these peak states. Yeah, uh, post-traumatic growth sudden, disorder, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> You said post-traumatic growth disorder? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you literally, you, you, you find yeah. ways to make the most of it. And, and that was true with, with Rick. I mean, Rick, and, Rick Dolan and I were at the Battery in San Francisco. We were, we were in a conversation with J, our friend Jason Silva. And we were in, it was in between sets. Like, oh, you know, Jason, yeah. Right? And, and we were talking. And I, was, and I was like, hey, Rick, how's the research going? What, what's up? What's new? And he's like, yeah, look, basically the closest we can, he, he, A, he said that lower dosages of MDMA were actually more efficacious therapeutically. So like rather than somebody rolling their face off and loving everybody, including the couch and the potted plant and their therapist they just met, like they're like, no, actually just give me enough to get into a super saturated state of vasopressin, prolactin, serotonin, oxytocin, where I feel safe, secure, and, and enough. And I can revisit my memories and I can, and then I can sort of take them off the shelf because memories are plastic, right? They're constantly remade and, and made again. I can clean them up and then I put them back on the shelf. And I was like, wait a second. He, he was, and the closest analog we found is the post-orgasmic state. So that was another battle. I'm like, wait a second. So this is clinical trials, tons of people suffering, long waiting list. It's still, no matter how, they've, they've been blazing through phase three trials. It's going as fast as it possibly can, but it's going to be a long, long time before that makes its way around the world. You know, or we could pursue this esoteric state known only to scientists as post-orgasmic, you know, <laughs> and how else could we get people there? So it sort of felt like more like a, a, a civic responsibility to share the information. It, it is important that we talk about it. And it, so many people have lots of sh firewalls built up around shame and trauma and all that stuff around it. But I, I've always done my best to incorporate that. Uh, guys, there's more to sex than just having a little bit of fun here uh, into my work. And I appreciate that you did it in your book as well in a very quantitative, scientific, measurable way and saying there's a way to do this. Um, what about people who are uh, solo? Mm -hmm. Can you do this with just masturbation? Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the only thing that is absent is the thing that it's hard to tickle yourself, right? So like aside from that, aside from sort of the novelty and input and all the meaningful relational bonding elements that may occur if you're doing it with a partner. Absolutely, we can and should 
learn these things. It would be, it's sort of like, I wouldn't um, wait to learn how to ski to go on a ski holiday <laughs> with friends, right? I, I wouldn't wait to learn how to dance or play music to the moment I show up on stage in a band, you know? So, so the more we can learn the instruments of ourselves, um, and, and not in the whole sort of tension release, shame, get it over with as quickly as possible, you know, fast and furious for boys, you know, and, and perhaps, you know, whatever the experience of kind of seeking and not finding uh, for anorgasmic uh, people, including women. I mean, typically women skew more and, you know, have more of an incidence of that. It's harder for a woman to find her orgasm than it is for a teenage boy. Um, the ability for us to integrate healthy accumulation and discharge of those energies in our system is it's i would see it as analogous to contrast therapies like it's healthy to vasodilate and vasoconstrict to be super hot and really cold right it's it's we want to expand the range of our neurophysiological set points and i think a decent descriptor like some i think it was oh it was when we were talking to this to the navy seals because <laughs> i couldn't give them fluffy shit right i had to give them like a very i was like basically um you know, what has been called like a functional definition, a, pragma, a pragmatist definition of 21st century Western enlightenment is nothing more nor less than the ability to match state to task. Right? So not we're all going to be cross-eyed and theta sitting groovily, you know, mm. you know right, right, like Eckhart Tolle, right? Like we're, we're, it's actually like, it's like, well, wait, if you want to meet God, yes, you want to be, you know, empty and humble on your mountaintop. But if you're jumped in a bar fight, you want to be a fierce warrior protecting the people you're with. If you're trying to calm a colicky child in the middle of the night, you want to be the most, the baddest ass mammal parent you've got in you, right? And so it, it, there is no promised land that we get to that is a fixed state. It's much more like balance on a surfboard. It's like, well, where's balance on a surfboard? It's like, well, it depends. Where are you on the wave? What are you trying to do? Mm-hmm. Right? Balance is a, is a center, but that center is always in flux. And, and, and adding in sexuality where you can create you know, both peak arousal, so the increase of tension, followed by deep recovery, the post-coital element, that expands our window. Not unlike ice baths and saunas, not unlike intermittent fasting, binge purge, right? All of these kind of things. It's just all we're doing is just we're reclaiming the full spectrum of human physiology and psychology. And then, you know, because we're very, no man is an island, no woman is either. And our sociology, us doing all these things together. I, uh, I love that. And there's, there's so much in the book uh, and just so, so much more that we could go into about um, sex and transcendence and healing and all that. I, I just love it that you put it out there as a part of it. I want to ask you a few relatively rapid fire questions. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them uh, from other parts of the book, three dead giveaways to spot a leader using cult programming to build fans and get rich. Mm. Well, they're doing it on Instagram. That's the first one. No, that's not, that's not the first <laughs> one, but it's, it's a good tell. And if they were into the secret five years ago, that's another one. Um, no, it's, um, I think it's, uh, first of all, mythologized origin stories. If you ever hear somebody giving you this perfectly polished tale of early signs of prodigious talent, like they were doing outrageous things when they were ch- children, or, they, you know, or, or just precociousness that almost seems predestined, or the, the alternate is the classic, you know, um, 
Paul on the road to Damascus. I was a gang leader, thug, drug dealer, and then, or I was addicted and I had the house and it all, I lost it all, but ne- you know, then I hit rock bottom and I'm now here to you. That's a uniquely American redemption story. So just be super suspicious of anybody's origin stories that seem to grant them special privilege. Um, Massive, like specific use of in-groups and out-groups. So we are here particularly with a messianic purpose, those kinds of things, anything along those lines where, and even, you know, the harnessing of volunteer labor. And then somebody says, well, I kind of like to get paid or I can't make rent. And how dare you? Don't you believe in this enough? This is really the thing. And then the final absolute tell for me is weaponization of ecstasis and catharsis, peak states and healing. And the classic pattern, you know, and you see this in personal growth stadium events, you've got the cannons going, the fog and the lights and all these things, and everybody's amped and amped and amped, and it's three or four days of this. And then it's like, and if you want to sign up for our super special secret platinum double, double course, there's people in the back and go sign up now. And it's three easy payments. So like, here I am juiced to the gills and I am not sovereign of my own choices at that moment. Um, or the only way to get high is to come to our satsang, is, is, is our special sessions. We have the goods and we mediate access to ecstasy. I mean, I was just talking with someone yesterday, it was about Texas blue laws. And it's just fascinating, right? That the blue laws around the country where you can't buy alcohol on Sundays. But it's like, well, wait, the only place you can get any alcohol, even though it's a tiny little sip, is at church and communion wine. And you're like, that's, right. A, right? that's a classic example, but there's tons of other communities that do it. And the notion of catharsis and whether that's encounter groups like Est and Landmark, you know, those kinds of technologies, or whether it's psychosexual, whether it's psychedelic, whatever it would be, your boundaries are dropped, you're feeling the feels. And those are moments where um, you take signs of attestment, like atonement, I'm so sorry, I was wrong, payment, I'd like to sign, a, sign away my trust fund to you because you guys are saving the world, any of those things where, where key decisions or personal commitments or personal abasements are negotiated and orchestrated to take place in a place that is not clear and sober, with full yeah. consent. That, that's the issue with any of these practices that really open you up. It's all about uh, finding a safe place to do it with. I mean, there are lots of people who have hung up a shingle, I'm a shaman because I <laughs> had ayahuasca twice. And you're like, maybe you need to be careful there. So I, yeah. I have concern over all this because I also know some very advanced guru people who can do some amazing stuff. Right, mm-hmm. and you go to a, a group with one of them, and you're like, "Wow, did that just happen?" I, I think so, and it's not a manipulative thing. And there are other ones who are complete—I'm going to call them charlatans because they know they're being manipulative, and it's your job to figure out what's real and what's not, mm-hmm. which makes all of this a bit more slippery. But when you have it, uh, um, when, when you've when you've met a few of the people who are not real, the best people who are real, you can tell the difference. But mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to get sucked in. Um, so I, I appreciate the warning there. All right, another fast one for you that would be uh, that would be fun. All right, tell me about from your book what psychological trait neo Nazis and social justice warriors have in common and why we should be afraid. Mm. Yeah, that was um, that was actually a study out of uh, an Australian university last year. And they took uh, three populations. They took sort of centrist, progressive Americans. It was, it was a, I think the, the, the sample size was about 500 folks. And it was a chunk of folks with centrist, progressive views, and then a chunk, a chunk of basically um, Aryan nation, kind of alt-right, white identitarians, and then also far-left uh, social justice advocates. 
And they did a study on authoritarianism plus the dark triad, which was Gnosticism, Machiavellianism, and sociopathy. So generally not very nice people, right? And what they found was is that the folks in the middle who were like, I believe what I believe, but I also reserve the right for others to believe what they believe, whiffed on all four of those. But both far left and alt right scored substance off the charts on authoritarianism and dark triad personalities. And so what that means, you know, the, the, and, and one of the, you asked me how I kind of came up with a name for the book and kind of why would I bother leaning in? It was that Yeats poem, The Second Coming, right? You know, where he's talking about the end of the world, right? Like, you know, the slouching mm-hmm. towards Bethlehem. But there's a line in there that I've, I've always remembered where he says, the best lack all conviction while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. And, and, you know, and you're just like, oh, shit, that's kind of where we are right now, especially amplified by Twitter and social media and all these things. You've got, you know, let's say one to three percent on either extreme who are dark triad authoritarians who are weaponizing otherwise really important and meaningful folks in the middle. And a lot of folks are getting pulled apart from each other, which is where we, where we need to be and getting oriented around those folks. And the most compelling historical example is, you know, Maximilien Robespierre and the French Revolution, right? I mean, the French Revolution started out with liberty, equality, and brotherhood. It was, it was rad, <laughs> you know? And, the, and all those folks who were like, we're going to do this really well. We're going to kind of communicate with royalty and the, and the courts and all this. And then Robespierre comes in, outflanks them, chops all their heads off, says, if, if you're going to make an omelet, you got to break it through a few eggs, right? And then in comes the reign of terror. And so it feels like it's really important that we understand that even if it's profoundly important um, pro-social, pro-human ideals, that they are not invulnerable to capture by malignant sociopaths and to really constantly steer, because as they create factions and pull us apart, then the no man's land in between is increasingly scary. And if you're like, oh shit, I don't know if that's right for me or if that's my truth. But on the other hand, wading through the barbed wire and the tank traps and the landmine seems like a no-go either. So we end up huddling next to people that may not be fully trustworthy and may not, they may be actually on a power trip, like a quite literal power trip versus leading the way to a future that works for all of us. Very, uh, very well said. I'm certainly seeing that. I believe that most people are profoundly in the middle. And you see that one to 3% of very loud, (laughs) um, like I said, malignant narcissists who are manipulating, screaming, and making it appear as if everyone agrees with them or is against them, whereas most people are sitting in the middle going, is it everyone else who believes? Am I all by myself? And what I'm saying is that actually, no, if you're in the middle, you're not all by yourself. You're in the majority. And that's important. You're listening to the show. It's okay to you know be in the middle on lots of stuff. You don't have to be on a party. You don't have to be either for or against anything. And it's a lot more relaxing that way. Thank you, Jamie, for an intriguing and interesting conversation. And most importantly, I'd say for doing the hard work of, you know, of the survey of collecting data and talking about the hard stuff that people don't want to necessarily talk about. The Upgrade Collective is all saying, bring you back on for another episode. I'm seeing tons of that. So uh, you up for that in another month or two, coming back, maybe talk about another part of the book. I'd do that. Absolutely. Everyone says, let's do death. Oh, it sounds yeah. kind of weird, Deborah. But whatever you're into, yeah. no, it's it's actually, and this one is not the morbid <laughs> stuff. Actually, it's truly inspiring. It's it's the whole die and be be reborn a second time as a as a homegrown human, so we can all show up fully. So that's that's the invitation. All right.
Well, we're going to do another episode, and I appreciate your time today. And recapturetherapture.com is the website for the book. Most of your work is at flowgenomeproject.com, which I've uh, been a supporter of and still am a supporter of. And Upgrade Collective members, it was your input on the show that caused me to ask Jamie to come back for another episode. So thank you for the real-time live feedback. And if you're listening to this on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts, you could be in the live studio audience as I'm recording these, actually chatting with me, chatting with guests, as well as a community of thousands of people learning really cool stuff from me. And personally, I'd love to see you there, our Upgrade Collective. And as always... If you are a good person and you read Recapture the Rapture, you must leave a review. Because if you don't leave a review, it's like getting coffee and not tipping your barista, and that's bad too. (laughs) Have an awesome day. And as Jamie's going to tell you, um, get laid, but get laid really well. Did I quote you right, Jamie? We didn't come here to pet wombats. (laughs) What the hell? That was an (laughs) awesome ending. Thank you, brother. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.